Good morning. My name is Kim Cosgrove, and it's great to be here with you today. It's been a while since I've been with you, and I've missed it. Uh, I have had to switch to the night group because my days are now filled with work. Um, our family has a business in Bembrook where we do quality inspections for aerospace industry. And because I'm an owner, uh, I have to be there to help push paper. And uh, But I do miss being with all of you ladies. So let me just welcome the night group in case any of them are listening through the web. It's nice to be with you on Wednesday nights. Uh, as well. One of the new things in my life, I'll just catch you up a little bit on on things that have happened. Um, I have a new grandbaby and his name is Graham and he's two months old now. So I'm a part of the grandmother's club and I finally get why all the grandmothers go crazy over their grandkids. Uh, It is a very fun stage of life and I'm enjoying it immensely. So uh, let's get started. We are in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. And let me just kind of give you an overview of where the talk is going. Basically, I want to answer the question of how can we worship with all the talk of judgment? When I wanted to get some stats on Judgment Day, I went straight to the the only reliable source these days, which is Google, right? And a hundred people were asked how the world would end, how they thought the world would end. And here were the results. 28 said they thought nuclear war would end the world. 20 said that they didn't think it would happen. 16 thought climate change would end it. 16 thought Judgment Day would end it. 9 said worldwide revolution. 8 said something else. 2 said zombies. And 1 said aliens. So I don't know if I need to make too much commentary here, but basically out of 100 people, only 16 had the biblical perspective that the end of the world as we know it would come about by God's judgment. And I would conjecture not too many people even think about Judgment Day. It's not a topic people like to talk about. If you go into Barnes & Noble in the religion section and look for the Christian books, you'll, you'll probably find many versions of Chicken Soup for the Soul, but probably not a book on preparing yourself for the judgment of God. So as we prepare to talk about this heavy subject, why don't we ask the Lord to uh, be with us here. Father, we do need your presence. Uh, We thank you for this study, the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. It, It is an amazing book to know that you've preserved it for us and we believe you preserved it for us today, that we're, there is something here for us in Fort Worth, Texas in 2017, and that's an amazing thought. Uh, but we ask you to uh, teach us and guide us, guide my mouth and the words that I will speak, and uh, prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were in. I was in leaders' meeting earlier this morning, and we were kind of getting a chuckle out of one of the verses in the passage, which was about a pregnant woman giving birth to wind. I don't know if y'all remember that from your from your lesson, but it was funny that that we were talking about that because as I was thinking about giving a talk, I was thinking, you know, it's a lot like having a baby. I mean, you go through this process of struggle and then hopefully you've got something at the end and thankfully it doesn't take nine months but 
Um, but anyway, so I was thinking back on my first baby, which was last year, uh, Hebrews chapter one. Um, one of the reasons I even like to teach is because it makes me study and I'm lazy enough that I need the pressure of having to give a talk to really get down and study, uh, for it. And I was amazed at from last year when I, as I prepared to teach that there was there something underneath the text that I wasn't seeing just on first look. And that had to do with uh, Jesus being crowned king in heaven. Um, that the passage was Jesus being compared to the angels, uh, to which of the angels did he ever say uh, this and that. There were seven Old Testament quotations. Uh, and it wasn't until really studying that I realized that these Old Testament quotations very likely were, was a vision of God speaking this over his son in the presence of the angels to to exalt him and crown him king, uh, king of heaven and ultimately king of earth as well. Um, and so one of the last Old Testament, the last quotation that was spoken over Jesus in that passage was, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so it brings me to today's passage, which the way this the whole teaching thing works is you don't end up picking what you're going to teach on. It kind of picks you. And so, you know, I was assigned this passage and read it and, you know, was kind of blown away with the the fact of this was having to do with the judgment of the earth. And I didn't really see too much past that. But as I started to to really study it, I realized that just like that first passage was about Jesus being crowned king uh, in heaven. Now this second passage was going to be the, the great day in the future when Jesus will return to the earth to claim his place as rightful king of the earth. Um, and so just, it was just amazing to me that, that I had the start and the, the kind of the final climax chapter of of Jesus claiming his rightful place on earth as king. So how do, how do I know that? I just want to put this out there. As I was studying, one of the things that I learned was as these Old Testament writers, a lot of times they would use mechanisms to help their readers see what their point was. And Isaiah used something called a chiastic structure to show his readers what his main point was. So in chapter 24, it starts, and what it is, a chiastic structure is, you can think of it like a mountain, where he's traversing up one side of the mountain until he hits a point, and then he comes back down the mountain. And these two sides of the mountain are mirror images of each other, and that's what focuses your attention on the mountain top. And I've got that in your handouts if you have that in front of you. But the mountain top here in this chiastic structure of these four chapters of Isaiah is chapters 25 verses 6 through 12. And I'm going to read 6 through 9 just to kind of get us centered on what is the main point of these four chapters. 
Chapter 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So we have this incredible picture of Christ uh, returning on the mountain to reclaim his rightful place as king of the earth. There's something that theologians will call a meta-narrative. It is this idea that there is an overarching story over the entire uh, Bible. And so the Bible really isn't a collection of just stories that stand alone, although I think I thought that for years. It's the inspired writing of the Holy Spirit through human authors to record the big picture of God. Um, It explains the whole reason we exist at all and what God's doing throughout human history. But people don't come to the Bible really in that way. They uh, they really kind of come to it. What does it say about me? What it, what does it say about humanity? And one time I heard a speaker illustrate the point of how people come to the Bible. And his method was he took, he started in Genesis 1 and he read the book of Genesis uh, to the congregation. And as he finished the the chapter, he said, you know, most of you, while I was reading this, after about the first 15 verses, you thought to yourself, he's going to read the whole chapter. And then when I finally read verse 26 through 28, where it talks about God creating man, you finally thought to yourself, well, finally it gets interesting. And his point was, most people really aren't too interested in the Bible unless they think it's about them. And the Bible really is about the story of God more than it's about us. Yes, we're in it, obviously, and what is our relation to him, but it's the story of God. One of the way one of the meta narratives that people use to help give the overarching view of what God's doing is this idea of two cities. Um You'll see the two cities referenced in these chapters a lot. The one city is called the Wasted City, or the City of Chaos, or Babylon. Babylon was a real place and a real nation, and sometimes it's used when they talk about Babylon for that nation, but other times it's kind of <clears throat> the the name that is given that represents the whole of humanity being governed by uh, Satan, the prince, prince of darkness. The other city in this passage is called Mount Zion or Jerusalem or the strong city. And for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to to talk about the two cities as either the city of chaos or the city of God. 
The city of chaos is ruled by Satan, ultimately, but usually it manifests itself as people doing what is right in their own eyes. So let me quickly trace the idea of the two cities motif throughout scripture. I mean, when we start in Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Just this idea of the earth was without form and void. The, the Hebrew word there is tohu. And it, uh, the reason I bring that up is that word, that Hebrew word tohu, is also in this passage. And it's translated the wasted city. Okay, so even from Genesis 1, we have this idea as God created, there was a city that was not yet what it should be. It was it was empty. Uh, and then we have in Genesis 3, the entrance of an antagonist. And we have quickly, we've gone from paradise to rebellion. And humanity and creation now has a curse uh, because of the deceiver and Adam and Eve's um, follow, following that dece deceiver. In Genesis, by Genesis 6, we've had evil spreading wildly to where God has judged the earth uh, with a flood. And Genesis 11 starts where humanity is attempting to build themselves their own city to make their name great. And God immediately confuses their languages and disperses them throughout the world. And in Genesis 12, one chapter later, it, it talks about Abraham and God choosing Abraham to make his name great by giving him a great nation. So the city motif of there's the city of man where man is in control and God saying, no, I'm going to be your king and I will build my city. And he used Abraham. And so then we have this whole... This whole history lesson of how the cities are doing. At the time of Isaiah's life, the two cities aren't doing great. We have the city of chaos, the Gentile nations that don't have God. They're a mess. Uh, their sin is everywhere and it's evil. Uh, then, But you also had the Lord's chosen people, Israel. And he's given himself to them to reveal himself. And he's given him his laws and what he's like, but they're not obeying. And so, even though they have God, they're a mess as well. But God knew that, and his, his plan from the beginning was to build his city with Jesus as the true Israel of God. And so, that is the, this meta-narrative of Jesus being the true king and the one who keeps covenant with God. Until you have the final city, the one spoken of in Revelation 21, where it says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So that is the great meta narrative uh, that they're talking about these two cities of God, the, the final city of God where Jesus is the king and he's got the inhabitants of his nation are glad subjects that uh, obey him joyfully. But to get there, something has to happen and that's where judgment comes in. Uh, for that city to happen, all the things that have kept it from being reality have to be uh, done away with. And so we're faced with this idea of judgment. So to talk about it a little bit, I, I want to make sure we're all understanding just how awful it is. So I'm going to read a few passages uh, that describe the judgment. This is in Isaiah chapter 13. It says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. That's the day we're talking about here. When Jesus returns, wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty. It will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. In Jeremiah 46, it says that day is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river, river Euphrates. Then we have in Second Peter, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In Second Thessalonians it says, God will repay... Repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay, so, I mean, that's heavy. That's, that's the judgment of God. When Christ returns, uh, he will judge evil. So, we're going to switch now and talk a little bit about judgment. Uh, if the focus of this passage is worshiping our king, and we've got judgment here, how do we worship our king when judgment is such a clear picture of, of coming with him? So I'm going to give you four reasons why judgment is a good thing. The first reason judgment is a good thing is that it's reality. Okay. Um, it may sound obvious and not helpful, but really when it comes down to it, don't you really want to know what's true? Don't you want to know life as it really is instead of the way you think it should be. And the Bible is very clear that judgment is a reality. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So 
the fact is judgment is a reality one day in the future God will return Jesus will return and he will judge the earth John Piper says this about judgment he says if hearing about God's judgment makes it harder for us to love God then probably the God we love is a figment of our imagination and not the real and true God if we would love the true God we must know the true God there is something wrong with our faith if we cannot sing praises to God, not only as our loving Father, but also as the righteous judge of all the earth. Okay, so that's reason one why it's a good thing uh, that there's judgment, is that it is reality and, and that God has ordained it. But second reason why it's a good thing is that without judgment day, there is no hope. Okay, that may sound a little uh, wrong at first, but let me see if I can make a case for it. There's a playwright named Arthur Miller who wrote a play called After the Fall. And he's not a Christian, uh, but he wrote this play and then he had a character in there called Quentin. And the story went that he had decided that there was no no God, no religion, and so he did what everybody did, which was to do what he wanted. And uh, he would he went through life. He was he was a student, and then he was he got a job, and he was doing his work, and then he got married, and all along the way, he said he was litigating his life. And what he meant by that was he was making judgments about should he do this. Or should he do that? And which one was better? And which one was, was right? Was he a good... Had he been a good student? Had he been a good employee? Had he been a good husband? And he said... Uh, he As he continued to move through life... Litigating his life all along the way... He got to towards the end of his life... And he looked up... As he was litigating it... To realize there was nobody on the bench... Meaning there was no judge over which to declare that he had done a good job or not. And he realized that what had started out as liberation, meaning there was no judge on the bench, uh, he could do whatever he wanted. It was whatever was right in his own eyes. But it turned to hopelessness because he realized at the end of his life, there was no one saying that he had done a good job or done a poor job. And so... what that illustrates is that all of these things that we decide going through life, this is right and this is wrong, and we've all got our standards for what, what we think is good. If there is no judge at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we did. Uh, all of life really at that point be, is meaningless. So we have this great liberation to do what we want, but it's at the cost of meaningless. So really, you should be hopeless if there is no judgment day. If there's no one on the bench, you should be hopeless. And the reason why I think most people aren't hopeless, because I don't think most people really think there is a judgment day, is number one, probably just because they're not thinking clearly. They haven't really thought it through like Arthur Miller's character Quentin did at in the story. But the other reason they may not, it may not... <clears throat> 
have sunk in with them is that they haven't been a victim of horrible evil. They've had a pretty easy life. Which brings me to point number three of why Judgment Day is a good thing. This one, this idea was was introduced by a guy named Miloslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologist, theologian, excuse me. Uh, He wrote Exclusion and Embrace. And he's lived through the Croatian-Serbian War. And there was just so many atrocities that he had seen. And <clears throat> he realized that he, he, he is a believer. And he realized that there was really no way to prevent someone from seeking vengeance for a great atrocity that had been done to their family. So, you know, fathers that had seen their daughters raped and killed he he had nothing to say to them to prevent them from taking vengeance for that unless there was a God who would take up the sword. Um, this whole idea of practicing nonviolence requires the idea that there is a divine vengeance. How, vengeance. How can you not seek vengeance for something if you think that it will not be punished? And, and the fact of the matter is, we are not created to be able to take vengeance. I think it would destroy us. God knows that it would destroy us to be able to take vengeance. So he does it for us. Uh, he is our defender. Um, and so when he tells us to turn the other cheek, it's because under the understanding that it will be punished, there, every wrong will be made right. It will either be made right on Judgment Day in the future or it was made right at Judgment Day at the cross. So that's the third reason why it's good that there's a Judgment Day. The fourth fourth reason uh, that it's good that there's a Judgment Day is that it removes the very things that have cursed our lives. Satan, sin, and death. You know, for many people, just the idea that God is a God that judges evil people uh, and that he is a God of wrath is is incompatible with an with an idea that God is love. They cannot reconcile that God can be love and also punish evil. But it's the very thing about God, the fact that he is a God of love, that makes him punish evil. I think every parent can feel this and and knows that that kind of love. If you have something that is threatening your child or someone you love that that's the quickest way to elicit wrath out of you uh it's it's the idea that you're protecting this loved one from from evil and that's really what how you reconcile a god of love with this god of judgment is that this judgment is uh protecting those that he loves um and so he does he punishes sinful people and Satan and ultimately death. And it's what allows the city of God to be fully realized. Those problems that have plagued humanity since Genesis chapter 3 have to be dealt with before uh, the city of God can come in fullness. And so what what are we saved for? What is this judgment bring about. And, and that brings me to, uh, the last point, which is we're saved for the city of God. If you look on your sheet, 
you see what what is being judged uh it's the wicked and the cursed earth is being judged and satan is being judged and death is being judged and it yields the city of god which is peace and a new heavens and a new earth and a good king and eternal life so all of those things are just counterparts to the city of god they have to the judgment has to happen before the fullness of the city of God can come in. You know, sadly, as I'm thinking about this talk and thinking about judging and evil, uh, there's no shortage of examples of evil. You know, just last Sunday uh, in Sutherland Springs, uh, a man killed 26 people in church uh, through an act of evil. And not long before that a mass shooting in in Las Vegas where 58 people died and over 500 are injured and and the ultimate response to evil like that across the board christian or non-christian is just the horrificness of it and that it is completely wrong i've never heard anyone say that the person responsible for the evil should not be judged i mean it is the image of god in us that we we know that that has to be punished but the truth is most of the time sin doesn't seem that bad to us uh we don't see clearly we don't see that all sin is terrible and it belittles god and hurts us so that the very thing that is the seed of a horrible evil like sutherland springs or las vegas is the very thing that resides in us as indwelling sin. Um, And so it has to be done away with, and God is going to do that. And so we've got this picture of Jesus doing that. He judges the world, and then he institutes this marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's just amazing to me just to think about all of humanity coming those that have faith in christ coming together to worship him as king and he forever identifies himself as the lamb Uh, that picture of him being the sacrifice we will never look on him without thinking of him as the sacrifice the whole reason we can be at the marriage supper of the lamb when we we're we also have sinned. Why are we not judged? And the reason why we are not judged is because our judgment day fell on Christ. Our judgment fell on Jesus as the Lamb of the world. So while I've said everyone will be judged, and that is true, your judgment day is either in the future at a day coming, or it's in the past at the cross. And it's um, you have to decide whether Uh, you will bow to him now or wait for the judgment that is to come. Okay, so we've been flying pretty high in these chapters. I mean, this is a huge topic of worship and judgment. But I want to bring it down to, does it matter to us? As we get ready to walk out these doors and live life again, does this idea that God is coming back to to judge and to ultimately destroy every thing that is keeping the city of God from being realized in fullness. He's going to judge that sin and death and Satan. Does it matter 
as we go out these doors. And so I'm going to, just like in that first talk, my application was, we are worshipers. We are created to worship. And we are always worshiping something. And the, the idea this time is, are we worshiping the king in the city of God? Uh, and the way you can know that is, as a child of God, you have been placed in the city of God. He is your king. You are there. However, you can functionally live in the city of chaos instead of the city of God by not worshiping the true God, but worshiping a false God. So just kind of one of the things that I want us to examine is what, what emotions are controlling you? What specifically are you feeling? Are you controlled by fear, anxiety, anger, disappointment, discouragement, grief, sadness, hope, excitement, pride, joy, desire, anticipation? Those are all emotions and the emotions in themselves aren't bad, but there is a thought underneath that is fueling those emotions. And if you find yourself being controlled by an emotion, you definitely need to see what are the thoughts underlying those, those emotions. What are you thinking on? Are these beliefs God honoring? Are they true? Do they reflect the true king or a false God of your own making? Um, so that's one application that I want us to take with us. I want us to examine, are we really worshiping this God that uh, has been presented to us? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are in the city of God now by faith, uh, but we can functionally live in the city of chaos by not worshiping our true king. Second application I w would like us to take out of here, and it's kind of an obvious one, but I want to make it anyway, and that is this idea of judgment. Do we ever talk about judgment as we live our lives? You know, and I'm, I'm just thinking about myself. Um, do I ever actually speak on it to people that there is a coming day of ju judgment um, that people need to be ready for and you know do I think you know we need to go stand on the street corner at Sundance Square and, and preach about Judgment Day that's not what I'm saying but it is a, a reasonable reasonable point to say do we ever speak about that there is a coming day of judgment and that's kind of been something that I've been thinking about as I prepared this and then the last application uh, is this idea of Sutherland Springs and being an encouragement to this uh, church body that has experienced this horrific evil. And I saw on Facebook from a friend um, who had experienced the Wedgwood shooting in Fort Worth many years ago that one of the things that had really encouraged their church as they dealt with all of that, the aftermath of that, was seeing all the cards of people from all over the world, really, of just encouragement standing with them. And so I thought that would be a good thing maybe for us to do. And so I put the address of the church in there. It's First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 115, Sutherland Springs, Texas, 78161. Just to write a card and just encourage them that, um, that we stand with them, uh, that we uh, are praying for them. 
and and that one day evil will be done away with and that will be a a happy day so uh thank you uh i want to end with just reiterating verse nine uh from this this glorious chapter it will be said on that day behold this is our god we have waited for him that he might save us this is the lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation let's pray father how do we thank you for such an incredible gift of grace that you've given us to have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light you've delivered us from the domain of darkness through no goodness of our own but just from your kind intention of your heart and you transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins thank you father for this incredible gift of grace and mercy help us to continue to understand just how beautiful you are and to to spread that news to others that don't know you yet we thank you for that we pray it all in jesus name amen